Welcome, welcome back. My name is Will Duvall. I'm the associate pastor here at West Hills. Um, as I said, welcome back. You know, I strategically uh, preached last week's very challenging message from Nehemiah 5, the Sunday before the PGA Championship, so that just in case um, we had a much lighter attendance this morning, I could blame it on the golf and not have to deal with the fact that maybe I'd run people out of the church. Um, but we are hopefully excited to, to dive back into the book of Nehemiah this morning together. Uh, we'll be in chapter 6 and 7. Um, to, to recap quickly, for those of you who are stepping in, in the middle of our sermon series on the book of Nehemiah, uh, Nehemiah is all about the return of these Jewish exiles uh, back home to Jerusalem from Babylon, where they've been in exile for some 150 years. And Nehemiah, in particular, as their leader, has received a special calling from God to rebuild uh, the city's walls, uh, which, as we've seen these past five weeks, has proven to be um, maybe a little bit tougher than even he had bargained for. But this morning, Nehemiah is going to finish the wall uh, in chapter 6, but as we might expect by this time, it's not going to be without some lingering opposition and difficulty. So uh, last week, Nehemiah faced an internal enemy, his own people's injustice toward one another. And this morning, uh, we're, we're going back to facing external enemies, but this time it's personal. I've kind of outlined, um, Steve, if we have that next slide, uh, one way of kind of helping you think about where we've been these past couple weeks. Uh, the, 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 the external threat this morning is personal. They're coming after Nehemiah himself. And so I'm going to treat this morning as sort of a part two sequel sermon to Gary's uh, excellent sermon from two weeks ago uh, that was entitled When Surrounded by the Enemy. So this morning is When Still Surrounded by the Enemy. And so I want to quickly start by reviewing his bullet points from uh, chapter four. His first point for us was we must know our enemy. In Nehemiah's case, it's the same three enemies that uh, he, he faced in chapter 4. Sanballat the Horonite, uh, Tobiah the Ammonite, and Geshem the Arabian. It sounds like a setup for a 5th century racist joke, but it's not. This is no laughing matter. Um, if we have the map, Steve, uh, to remind you, Nehemiah and, and Jerusalem is surrounded on all sides by these three enemies, these powerful uh, foes. And in our case, too, we are discussing this morning the same enemy that we discussed uh, two weeks ago. The uh, prince of this world, the accuser of the brethren, Satan. And uh, when you're facing an enemy like that, the first thing that you need to do after recognizing that you have an enemy is to pray often. So that was point number two from Gary's sermon. Nehemiah prays constantly throughout his book. Remember back to chapter one, we preached a whole sermon on the importance of prayer, but he peppers these, these prayers all throughout uh, his book. And especially as the opposition ramps up like it's going to this morning, and the conflict, conflict will reach a pinnacle, when the battle heats up, you pray often. And thirdly, you take up your armor. In chapter four, we saw Nehemiah uh, calling the people to basically work with, with a hammer in one hand and a sword in the other. And in Ephesians 6, Gary reminded us that we too are called to put on the full armor of God against our enemy, who is not flesh and blood in our case, but is the commander of spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. And so we face a daily spiritual battle, and we need 
to not forget it. It can be easy, if we're honest, I think sometimes to forget it, living in West County, St. Louis, that we live on the front lines of a battlefield. And yet when God looks down from heaven at the spiritual battle raging all around us for the hearts and minds and souls, the eternal fates of the lost, I wonder if God doesn't see West County, St. Louis as every bit as much a battlefield, a war zone as East St. Louis as Yemen, as Syria. We live in a spiritual war zone, and so we take up our armor. The fourth point was to do the next thing. Because the battle is so real and our enemy is so dangerous, Satan would love to have us paralyzed in fear, but God says perfect love casts out fear. So God calls us to just put one foot in front of the next and then do it again, do it again, and do the next right thing. And lastly, number five, We remember the Lord. Nehemiah reminded his builders in chapter four, when surrounded by your enemies, our God will fight for us. And so too, this morning we take comfort knowing that our God still goes before us to fight our battles today. Moreover, Jesus has already fought and already won the greatest battle of all over sin and hell and death. And so whenever we think about our enemy, we keep that perspective in mind. As the analogy goes, we live in the days of, Post D-Day, right? the, the battle has already been won, the war ha- has been decided, the allies have it in the bag, and yet there are still troops on the field, and in certain corners the enemy is still even gaining territory, gaining temporary ground, and so we need to, to keep fighting. We need this morning's message and reminders, but we also need to remember the big picture. Remember the Lord. Remember that victory is ours in him. And so, to those five points from chapter four, we're going to add five more points from chapter six this morning. I worked in um, a little mnemonic device uh, for you in your bulletins, uh, repetition of um, the the letters T and D uh, that'll start each of these uh, bullet points, TD. Uh, I don't know if subconsciously I was preparing for football season or or what. I should have tried to work it into PGA, PGA, but... (laughs) Um, oh, well. So, so speaking of which, uh, Scott and I, you'll be happy to know, uh, did get a tea time with Tiger for this afternoon. And so we're going to be running right after the service over there. So I'll try and keep us moving this morning. Um, if you would uh, stand with me out of respect for the reading of God's word. We've got a longer passage this morning. We're going to read all of chapter six and the first two verses of chapter seven. And so I'll read it for us if you just want to read along on the screen or in your Bibles. I'll read it kind of quickly, too, because we're going to go back and dissect this. When Sanballat and Tobiah and Geshem the Arab and the rest of our enemies heard that I had built the wall and that there was no breach left in it, although up till that time I had not set the doors and the gates, Sanballat and Geshem said to me, sent to me, saying, Come and let us meet at Hakafirim in the plain of Ono. But they intended to do me harm. And so I sent messengers to them, saying, I am doing a great work and I cannot come down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and come down to you? And they sent to me four times in this way, and I answered them in the same manner. In the same way, Sanballat for the fifth time sent his servant to me with an open letter in his hand, and in it was written, It is reported among the nations, and Geshem also says it, that you and the Jews intend to rebel. That is why you're building the wall. And according to these reports, you wish to become their king. You've also set up prophets to proclaim concerning you in Jerusalem, there's a king in Judah. And now the king will hear of these reports. So now come and let us take counsel together. Then I sent to him, saying, No such things. 
as you say, have been done, for you are inventing them out of your own mind. For they all wanted to frighten us, thinking their hands will drop from the work and it will not be done. But oh, now, O oh God, strengthen my hands. Now, when I went into the house of Shemai, the son of Deliah, the son of Mehetabel, who was confined to his home, he said, let us meet together in the house of God within the temple. Let us close the doors of the temple, for they're coming to kill you. They're coming to kill you by night. But I said, should such a man as I run away... And what man such as I could go into the temple and live? I will not go in. And I understood and saw that God had not sent him, but had pro- he had pronounced the pro- prophecy against me because Tobiah and Sanballat had hired him. And for this purpose, he was hired that I should be afraid and act in this way and sin so that he could give me a bad name in order to taunt me. Remember Tobiah and Sanballat, oh my God, according to these things that they did. And also the prophetess Noadiah and the rest of the prophets who want to make me afraid. So the wall was finished on the 25th day of the month of Elul and 52 days. And when all our enemies heard of it, all the nations around us were afraid and fell greatly in their own esteem, for they perceived that this work had been accomplished with the help of our God. Moreover, in those days, the nobles of Judah sent many letters to Tobiah, and Tobiah's letters came to them, for many in Judah were bound by an oath to him, because he was the son-in-law of Shechaniah, the son of Era, the son of Johanan, had taken the daughter of Meshulam, the son of Berechiah, as his wife. Also, they spoke of his good deeds in my presence and reported my words to him. And Tobiah sent letters to me to make me afraid. Now, when the wall had been built and I had set up the doors and the gatekeepers and the singers and the Levites had been appointed, I gave my brother Hanani and Hananiah, the governor of the castle, charge over Jerusalem, for he was a a more faithful and God-fearing man than many. The word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you this morning for your word. Father, would you soften and and speak now to our hearts. Give us uh, eager, hungry, thirsty for righteousness, for your word hearts uh, that would be like sponges and soak up um, the truths and the principles that you have for us this morning. And Father, help them to take root not just be theoretical principles, but to be practically applied in every part of our lives for your glory and for our good. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Point number one this morning is when the enemy tempts, do something. We hear in verses one and two, when our enemies heard that I was building the wall, Sanballat and Geshem sent to me, saying, come and let us meet together in the plain of Ono. Now, this has every appearance of being a concession speech from Nehemiah's enemies. They've been rooting against him for five chapters now, threatening and taunting him, but the reality of Nehemiah's impending success is sinking in and ostensibly They are ready to now officially recognize Judah as a nation again and Nehemiah as its governor. And so that's the auspices under which they send to him. But Nehemiah knows better. He tells them, but they intended, he tells us, they intended to do me harm. Now, what I think is interesting about that is Nehemiah doesn't explicitly uh, identify what they're doing here as an ambush. I mean, it's possible that they are inviting him just to try and trap him and, and kill him, but it's also possible that they legitimately just want to talk to him and want to lobby him to join forces with their little political coalition. 
These are influential leaders in these neighboring vassal territories ruled over by Persia, and they're clever. And so that what they do is they make alliances with one another, strategic partners in the area, so that the minute that Persia looks weak and vulnerable, they can band together and fight to win their freedom back. And so I think this, this offer has to be tempting to Nehemiah. Uh, to make some powerful friends in the, in the region. This could be Judah's best shot at, at regaining autonomous self-rule again one day, returning to the glory days of King David. Maybe Nehemiah even has some of his own political aspirations. Uh, not to mention, if they really are planning a concession speech, who doesn't like hearing, I was wrong, you were right. Right? I mean, I think it has to be tempting to go at the prospect of going to Ono and rubbing their noses in it. And, and, and so this morning, um, because we can't all be as humble as Nehemiah, I brought a few pictures uh, to share with you. Speaking of finishing walls, if we have that slide, uh, Steve. Um, because like I, I shared a couple weeks back, I'm not a very handy person. And so I had a lot of doubters um, when we had some water damage in our kitchen. Uh, but I was inspired this week, uh, not only by, by Nehemiah and rebuilding the wall, but also by our um, Airbnb uh, guests who were renting out our house and paying through the nose for the uh, PGA Championship. I was inspired to put my own uh, wall rebuilding skills to the test. And what you'll notice is here in, in, in Nehemiah, um, he doesn't beat his chest and brag and show off, um, you know, look at, look at the pictures of my wall. But like I said, we can't all be in Nehemiah, and I'm really proud of my wall. So I, you better believe I, I've been showing these pictures to everybody I can find this week who will look at them. So, of course, I'm going to take this opportunity. We're talking about walls. Um, but, but I think that that has to be tempting for Nehemiah, right, to, to, to bring his pictures, look at my wall. But how does he answer them? Verse 3, he says, I sent messengers saying, I am doing a great work, and I cannot come down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and come down to you? He says, thanks for the offer, but I'm kind of busy. When the enemy tempts, you do something else. You stay busy with God's work. And so think of a few other examples from elsewhere in Scripture. Think of Joseph with Potiphar's wife in Genesis 39. She grabs him in secret and says, I want you. No one's going to find out. In fact, Joseph probably knows it may cost him his life to refuse her. Potiphar is a high-ranking official, so I'm guessing she was pretty attractive, his wife, uh, Joseph, from everything we've gathered from the text, has probably never had the chance to be with a woman before. This is not just some imaginary Bible character, f- fictitious, made up. He's a real, you know, flesh and blood, red, red-blooded man. Uh, I have to believe this was tempting. No one's going to know. But what does Joseph do? He runs as far away and as fast away as he, as he possibly can. Consider Jesus in the wilderness when Satan tempts him in Matthew 4. Jesus hasn't eaten in 40 days. Anybody missed a meal lately? It's just 40 days. I don't care if he's the son of God. He was a real human person. Again, a a human man. He, He was tempted. You better believe he was tempted. But what does he do? He snaps into action. Specifically, he quotes scripture three times. And he claims the promises of God over and against the lies of the enemy. Now, consider a couple negative examples from Scripture. Most obviously, Adam and Eve. The very first temptation, Genesis 3, Satan tempts Eve with the fruit. And you have to believe she immediately recognized something is wrong with this walking, talking snake. But but does she get busy doing something else? Does she run away? Does she quote? No. She lingers. She doesn't immediately 
take the bite and sin, but she just kind of lingers, right? And she listens and she indulges the serpent. She starts rationalizing, getting on board with what he's saying. You know, he's, he's right. It really does look like it's good for food. Actually, it looks like the most attractive fruit in the garden. Why would God not want us to eat the most attractive food in the garden? Does he want to keep something good back from us? And so she rationalizes herself in the most fateful decision in all of human history. Remember David with Bathsheba and 2 Samuel 11. What's the reason that David even sees her naked on the roof and gets tempted in the first place? Do you remember verse 1 of that chapter? It says, In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab. But David remained in Jerusalem. The reason he gets tempted in the first place is because he's supposed to be doing something else. He's supposed to be staying busy with the work of God, the work that God had for him. But David decided to sit this battle out. Idle hands, idle minds, idle hearts are the devil's workshop. So what is the application for us today? Well, I think we have to ask ourselves, where does the enemy tempt you? And how do you respond when he does? It's not a question of if we'll be tempted, but when and how we respond. i just run through a couple examples. If you struggle with alcoholism, do you proactively take the long route home after a rough day at the office so you don't even have to drive by the bar? If you struggle with lust, do you immediately close the browser and walk away when, when that ad pops up? Have you proactively put software on your computer that makes it harder to even click when you're tempted? If you struggle with gossip, do you politely excuse yourself from the conversation when it turns takes a turn for the negative or change the subject so you're not even tempted. If you struggle with sloth and laziness, all you want to do when you get home from work is veg out in front of the TV. Have you asked your spouse to hide the remote for you, at least until you, you run around and work up a sweat playing with the kids? If you struggle with workaholism, have you set alarms on your phone? I will not leave for the office before this time, and I must leave the office at this time uh, to, to keep your work-life balance in check. If you struggle with anger, do you stop and count to ten? Do you recite scripture that you've memorized back to yourself when you start to feel rage bubble up? Do you have go-to prayers at hand that you can recall? I mean, these are, I could go on and on and on if I haven't hit a nerve for you yet. But the response that we need to be ready with in any temptation is always a variation of this same principle from James 4, 7 that we studied a few months back. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Those aren't two separate, uh, unrelated thoughts by James. Our resistance to the devil is by means of, by way of, our submission to God. The best way to resist Satan is by submitting and getting about the Father's business. The best defense is still a strong offense. And sometimes Satan's best strategy is to keep us so focused on the temptation and on the sin at hand that it becomes our whole world. It's all that we can think about. It's like that problem of the, the pink elephant. Don't think about the pink elephant in the room. What's the first thing everybody does? You think about the pink elephant in the room, right? That's one of Satan's best tactics. And sometimes the best advice against that is Nehemiah's here. Just get busy with something else. Just get, get busy with the work of God. If you're busy enough for God, you won't have time enough for Satan. And God's promise to us from 1 Corinthians 10, 13 is that even when we are still tempted, we're never alone. We're never alone because first of all, it's nothing unique to us. 
God says, all temptation is common to man. So quit thinking that we're special. No one else could possibly understand our sin struggle. They do. Moreover, we're not alone because God is with us. God promises himself to be with us. God is faithful, Paul says. He's right there with you in the thick of it. And for every possible temptation, he provides a way out. He promises to provide an escape. And oftentimes, I think the best escape route isn't to try and ignore and suppress that inner urge because it's too strong. You're not strong enough. The flesh is weak. It's, it's not to try and muster up the self-control to stay and fight and overcome. Again, flesh is too weak. You're not going to win that battle. Sometimes the best escape that God provides is just to do something else. It's to get busy with something else. Take that energy and redirect it towards another godly outlet. Point number two from verses five through nine is that when the enemy threatens, we disregard him. So after tempting Nehemiah unsuccessfully four times, what do his enemies do next? Nehemiah tells us, in the same way, Sanballat for the fifth time sent his servants to me an open letter in his hand. And it was written, it's reported among the nations, that you and the Jews intend to rebel. That's why you're building the wall. You wish to become their king. You've also set up prophets. And now the real king is going to hear these reports So come now, let us take counsel together. So what they're doing is they're starting rumors about Nehemiah plotting this rebellion, and they threaten him. You know, the king, the real king, Artaxerxes, he's going to hear about this. And what we need to hear them saying, what they're really saying is, we're going to make sure he hears about it. They're blackmailing him. And just to make sure that there is plenty of talk amongst the nations and that Nehemiah is, uh, is really worried and staying up at night about, man, just who is in on these rumors and this plot, what they do. Because just as a quick aside, this is, Nehemiah is dealing with the infamous people here, right? We all know who I'm talking about, people. Listen, I'm not going to name any names, but people have been talking Right? And, and if you've been around the church long enough, not West Hills, because we don't deal with this here, but other churches, you know that people tend to like to hang around churches, don't they? I guess because we're nice enough to not name names, but you know, we love each other too much to not confront indirectly, passively, and passive-aggressively. And so I want to encourage us, as an aside this morning, to not be people. Uh, let's, let's not be people. Let's um, agree that if something is bothering you enough, if it's important enough to mention it to someone, go do it to their face directly, like Jesus tells us to in Matthew 18. And if it's not important enough, then let it go. Deal? We all good about that? We're all on the same page? Good. Glad we got that cleared up. Never be an issue here again. Uh, Sanballat wants to return to Nehemiah here. Sanballat wants Nehemiah to know that people are talking. And so he sends an open letter. And for important letters like this in this day, you would seal it with your insignia from your ring. But Nehemiah, Sam Ballot wants Nehemiah to know that people have read it, so he keeps it open. Boy, are people talking. It's only a matter of time until the king finds out. So what is Nehemiah's response here? He says, Then I sent to him, saying, No such things as you say have been done, for you are inventing them out of your own mind. He totally disregards these empty, baseless threats. As T. Swizzle would say, haters going to hate, 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 hate. 
I'm just going to shake, 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 shake. You can sing it with me. Shake it off, shake it off, right? You disregard it. Proverbs 26, 4, answer not a fool according to his folly, lest you be like him yourself. Think about our enemy now. Think about Satan. Satan is a fool. Satan watched Jesus come back from the grave, and he is still openly rebelling against him. He's stupid. So don't even bother with him. Disregard his threats. His threats are empty. Why are his threats empty? Romans 8, if God is for us, who can be against us? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Satan constantly is lobbying, lobbying charges against us. Paul says, who can, who can bring any charge against us? 1 John 5.18, everyone who's been born of God, God protects him and the evil one does not touch him. We are untouchable now by Satan. But this is the key. This is the key. Why is Nehemiah able to sleep soundly at the night that he receives the letter from Sanballat? Two reasons. His reputation and his relationships. His reputation is so far beyond reproach, and his relationship, in this case, with Artaxerxes, his boss, is so rock solid that he doesn't even have to think twice about these baseless rumors. And so, it's an important principle. We are only able to disregard a threat to the extent that it's actually empty, an empty threat. If our character isn't above reproach, if our integrity isn't intact, if our relationships aren't rock solid, if we've given people a reason to distrust us, then it's not an empty threat, and we can't just disregard it. This is why uh, Peter says in 1 Peter 3, have a good conscience so that when you are slandered, they'll be put to shame. Let me give you an example of this that stood out to me recently. You can think about how it applies to your own life. When some of us, uh, some of the men at the church attended the Together for the Gospel conference in Louisville back in the spring, I signed up for a breakout session with John MacArthur entitled Criticism, a pastor's all too uh, familiar foe. And truthfully, I thought it was going to be uh, a session about what to do about my own critical spirit, my own negativity, but actually it, it ended up being about what to do if you're ever critical of me as your pastor, which again, thankfully, thankfully we never have to deal with that here. And I'm the perfect pastor. I never give you any reason to be critical of me. Uh, but, but MacArthur shared this personal testimony of three times in the course of his now 50-year ministry at Grace Community Church where some faction of his own elder board uh, tried to get him removed from the pulpit on trumped-up charges. And he shared the stories and he shared their allegations, but he didn't share his response and so at the end of his talk during the Q&A session, uh, somebody in the crowd raised their hand and said, sorry, sir, I didn't catch, what, how did you respond to them? And MacArthur just simply said, I didn't. He said, if my character and my ministry and the truth of the gospel that I preach every week and live out throughout the week, if that's not testimony enough, then nothing I could possibly say in my own defense would matter anyways. He says, I decided a long time ago never to defend myself in ministry. Now, he said, if they come after my family, that's another story. But, but he said, I, I'm not going to defend myself. I let, I let my ministry speak for itself. And so keeping a clear conscience, I thought that was a powerful example. Keeping a clear conscience, you can rest easy at night and disregard your enemy's threats. Number three, when the enemy tricks, we discern the truth. Verses 10 through 13 
Now, when I went into the house of Shemaiah, he said, let us meet together in the house of God within the temple. Let us close the doors of the temple for they're coming to kill you. Shemaiah says to him, you know where they'll never think to look for you? The temple. And Nehemiah says, you know why? Because it's illegal. I'm not allowed in there. Numbers 18, Exodus 29 and 33, only priests are allowed into the inner chambers of the temple. Nehemiah's enemies think if his reputation is too solid for our threats, then we're going to have to go after his reputation. We'll, we'll get him to sin by entering, we'll trick him into entering the temple. But Nehemiah quickly sniffs out their plot because he knows one very simple rule of thumb for discerning the truth in any situation that you and I need to, to know and to hear this morning. Are you ready for it? One simple rule of thumb God's word is truth. And God doesn't contradict himself. That's it. In scripture, the Bible calls Satan the deceiver of the whole world, a liar and the father of lies. But God's word, John 17, do we have that slide, Steve? John 17, your word is truth. Psalm 119, the sum of your word is truth. All of your word is truth. Every one of your righteous rules endures forever. So Nehemiah knows there's gotta be a, a breakdown here, and God doesn't lie, so Shemaiah, you must be the liar. What's the application for today? Well, I'll give you a few examples. I'll give you a few examples of our enemy's tricks and the lies that he still tries to pull today. One of Satan's best tricks is, is to simply convince us that he doesn't exist. Scripture very clearly teaches that he does. <laughs> so we need to remain vigilant, but according to a New York Times poll that I found from 20 years ago now. So I have to believe that this number has even gone up since then uh, as we become more enlightened in the last 20 years. But 20 years ago, 70% of people that they polled, Christians included, said that they don't, either don't believe in Satan or believe that Satan is just a symbol for evil. He's not real, a real entity. And even for those of us today that do know that he's real, how often does he convince us to forget it? Right? How often does he convince us to treat our spouse like the enemy instead? To treat our boss like the enemy instead? It's one of his best tricks. Friends, we cannot be deceived this morning. We have a real enemy. Another of his most clever but most insidious lies is to convince us that God just wants you to be happy. Any of y'all ever been tempted to believe that one? God just wants you to be happy. From greed to theft to adultery, just think how many marriages alone have been wrecked by this one single lie that Satan plants. You deserve to be happy. God just wants you to be happy. He wouldn't want you to be in a marriage this miserable. It sounds like a, an idea that's so good, it's got to be true. It sounds so good, it's got to be from God. It's got to be in the Bible somewhere. We want to believe it so badly, we don't even stop to check our concordance. It's not there. Spoiler, let me, let me save you the time. God nowhere in scripture says, I just want you to be happy. How about the lie that you are not good enough for God? See, these lies are so clever because there's a grain of truth in all of them. Satan convinces believers not to worry about him because God's going to protect you, which is true. But God himself tells us that the way he protects us is by giving us the full armor of God that we are to put on daily. 
Satan convinces us that God wants us to be happy because God said, I came that you might have life and life to the fullest. But Satan wants us to confuse our own version of happiness with God's version of life to the fullest. Satan wants to convince us that we're not good enough for God because we're not. He wants us to focus on that half-truth instead of finishing the verse, that while we were yet sinners, God, I'm such a sinner, I'm never going to be good enough for you, I'm unworthy. Of course you are, but finish the verse. While we were yet sinners, what? Christ died for us. Christ died for us. Brothers and sisters, do you see now why it's so absolutely essential to be in God's word daily, to put on the full armor of God, study, internalize, apply the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, daily. It is our only sure counter and corrective to the lies and the deceits of the enemy, and you better believe those are coming daily. Number four, when the enemy taunts, we depend on God. Verses 14 through 16. Do you remember what Nehemiah's enemies were saying to him back in chapter four? Remember their taunts? I said, look at that wall. A fox could knock down that wall. Some of the trash talking gets lost in translation, but... The point is, they're taunting him and jeering. And what does Nehemiah say to them in chapter 6? What does he say of them when they see the finished product? He says, And all the nations around us were afraid, and they fell greatly in their own esteem, for they perceived that this work had been accomplished with the help of our God. Only God could do this. Consider the odds that were stacked against them from the start. I'm still amazed personally that Nehemiah even recruited anyone in the first place. Remember, this was during the busiest season of the year, harvest season, in the middle of a famine nonetheless, already a shortage of food. And oh, by the way, you're not going to get paid. Who signs up for that? Can we just put Nehemiah in charge of our volunteer recruitment at West Hills, please? And then they got to build the thing on a shoestring budget, no homes built in town yet to go home and rest at night and take, take, take a load off. And you can't rest anyways because your enemies are constantly threatening you and coming after you, want to kill you, want to knock down the wall and all your progress. And so you got to work with a hammer in one hand and a sword in the other. So you're working twice as hard with half the results. And they still finish the thing in 52 days. 52 days, 40 feet, miles all the way around the city. Even their enemies are forced to admit this is a miracle. This is an act of God. They could not have done this on their own. And so as we think about personal application for us this morning, I want to invite you to consider, what are your stories? Can, can you recall personal stories from your own life that like Nehemiah's wall, you would point to and say, that, that was literally impossible for me to retell that story and to try and explain it to you other than by invoking God's sovereignty, God's providence, supernatural intervention by God. Think of those stories. If you're like me, I wonder if you will recognize a common thread throughout those stories in your life, that, that more often than not, the very same stories that the enemy wants to use to taunt us 
to say, look, this right here is proof that God doesn't exist. It's proof that if he does exist, he, he doesn't love you. He doesn't care about you. He doesn't have your best interest at heart. Those very same stories are the very same stories that God wants to use as proof, not only that he exists and that he loves us, but that only he could have taken a situation that hopeless and turned it around redemptively into a story of hope. Think of Joseph again. His brothers had sold him into slavery, but what does Joseph say about it? He says, what you meant for evil against me, God meant for good to bring about that many people should be kept alive. Only God, Joseph says, can take a story of attempted murder and human trafficking and turn it into one of the central stories that God uses as the means of salvation for all of Israel. Think of the cross. The cross, the ultimate example, the ultimate cause for taunt. Jesus, you fool, Satan thought. He mocked and taunted, and yet only God could have taken something so horrific and transformed it and redeemed it for something so beautiful and wonderful and powerful and good. Our salvation, only God can do that. What about your own life? I can think of the three or four greatest, biggest stories in my life, my past, that I look back and I think only God could have worked not only in spite of that, but through that, through those stories, through those events, to bring even more good out of it than if they hadn't happened in the first place. Only God can do that. I wouldn't have written my story this way. What is your story? What about your life currently? Where, what are the areas of your life right now where the enemy is taunting you right now? The weak sections of your wall that Satan is mocking, laughing at you. Have you learned, like the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 12, not only not to hide your weaknesses, but to boast in them? Because like Paul says, you know that in your weakness, his power is made perfect. Amen? Final point, number five. When the enemy takes down the faithless, we depend on the faithful Nehemiah gets a whole two verses to enjoy the completion of his wall. And then what do we hear in verse 17? Is it over? Do his enemies give up when the wall is finished? In those days, the nobles of Judah sent many letters to Tobiah, and Tobiah's letters came to them. Wait, what? Nehemiah's own, own builders, the, the own nobles that he's recruited back to Jerusalem and called them back together as a people now. They've, they've become pen pals with his enemies. Apparently, Tobiah had decided that if he couldn't beat them, he would join them. And so evidently, what we know from context here is that once the city wall was rebuilt, Tobiah, ever the opportunist, saw a chance to get in on the ground floor of this larger rebuilding project, and he made some strategic investments. And so now he owns these Jewish nobles. He's got them in his back pocket. And not only that, he is strategically married to, in order to gain more influence in verse 18. And then he uses that influence, verse 19, to continue to go after Nehemiah. He just won't let it go. Now, if I was Nehemiah, I think that this, for me, would probably be the low point. This would be the most deflating of all. 
It's not the Tobias of the world. You expect the Tobias of the world, right? You expect enemies to come, but it's the Jewish nobles of the world. It's, it's the guys who are supposed to be on your side who sell you out at the first opportunity for personal advancement. This is, for, for you Braveheart fans, this is Robert the Bruce, right? This is, you expect the Longshankses of the world, the, the king of England. What you can't deal with is being betrayed by your own Scottish nobles, And yet, Jesus himself tells us to expect this, not to be surprised. Matthew 24. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders so as to lead you astray, if possible, even the elect. Matthew 10. Brother will deceive brother over uh, over to death. Father his child. Children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And so you'll be hated by all for my name's sake. Jesus says many who are posing as the elect today will prove themselves ultimately to have been faithless from the start because they're going to fall away. They're going to fall prey to the enemy's temptations and taunts and threats and tricks. Indeed, some of those closest to us will betray you. Your own family betray you because, as Jesus reminds us, the gospel runs deeper than blood, both for good and for bad both in unity and in division. Christ brings together a people in this room that otherwise have no business meeting together once a week. I have nothing in common with some of you other than the gospel. It runs deeper than blood, and yet I'm closer to you than I am to to some of my own family because of that. And yet it also, the gospel divides us from our own kin, our own blood who otherwise, you know, people who are closest to us otherwise, but who don't have fellowship with the Father. And so we, we ask ourselves this morning, what are we to do then? What are we to do? Do we take this as a cue that we can't trust anyone? Anyone might betray us. What does Nehemiah do? What do we hear? The very next thing in chapter 7. I appointed gatekeepers, singers, and Levites. I gave my brother Hanani and Hananiah the governor of the castle, charge over Jerusalem, for he was more faithful and God-fearing man than many. Nehemiah doubles down. Nehemiah doesn't let his Jewish frenemies undermine his faith in all of human relationships. He realizes that now more than ever, he needs to surround himself with people he can really trust, people more faithful and God-fearing than his betrayers. Yes, he's going to be careful in selecting them. Yes, he doesn't pick just anybody. But Nehemiah knows that in the face of your enemy's continued threats, even now that the wall is completed, they won't rest until he is personally destroyed. On his own, he will never make it. He must surround himself, depend on the faithful. We see this all over scripture, but I'll just give you a few. Proverbs 18, a man of many companions may come to ruin, but there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. Steve, do we have the the slide for that? Proverbs 17, a friend loves at all times and a brother is born for adversity. And my favorite, Ecclesiastes 4, two are better than one. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow, but woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. And though a man may prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. And a threefold cord is not quickly broken. Friends, we have an enemy. 
And another one of his best tactics is to separate us from the sheep, to separate the sheep from the rest of the herd because he knows that there's strength in numbers. And this is why God gives us each other. That's why God gives us the gift of his church, a fellowship and community with other believers. And so to close here in place of a final application point for number five, I want to just um, close by quickly promoting something. You're going to hear more about this in the coming weeks. But in conjunction with our 50th anniversary celebration on September 30th, as a part of the worship service that, that morning, we want to hear your stories. We want to hear your stories of God's faithfulness through the faithful this is, this is going to be a celebration for us as a church of the power and the impact of the local church in the life of a believer. And so we want short, just 10 to 30 second testimonials, video testimonials of how West Hills has made a difference in your life these past 5, 15, 50 years. So I'm going to be reaching out with more info in the coming weeks uh, but I want you to start thinking now, if you would, about your own personal stories of God's faithfulness through his, his faithful, through his church of providing this church for you and its faithfulness to provide you uh, in, 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 when you're in times of greatest need with that protection, that comfort. Um, our prayer is that this, this video compilation that we're putting together will serve as a, as a reminder to all of us when difficult times come, and they will, we're all going to go through those times in life when we, when we doubt all of this stuff. And it's, it's in those times when we need each other to be a cord of strength and protection, to be a hand to help you up when you're down, or maybe just a shoulder to cry on. And so we want you to know that when you're here at West Hills with us, you're never alone. Amen? All right, let's pray. Father, we thank you that in the face of a dangerous enemy, you don't leave us defenseless. You give us so many ways, means, mechanisms for defense the full armor of God. Father, we thank you for your word as a sure foundation. Like we sang this morning, your son, a firm foundation that we can always lean on, rely on, go to for wisdom, guidance, and discerning the truth when the enemy tricks. Father, we thank you for victory in Christ that the threats of the enemy are ultimately the accusations against the brethren, Revelation 12, they are ultimately found baseless, empty threats. Because who can charge God's elect? We are untouchable now because of the victory we have in your son Jesus. Father, we thank you that in the midst of temptation, you promise to always provide a way out that we can withstand it. And you promise that we're not alone in it either. We have each other. We have you. We have your word. You're such a good God. You provide for us in so many ways. In the midst of the storms of life, in the midst of 
whatever the enemy might throw at us. And so, Father, I pray, especially this morning, for any of my brothers or sisters here that might feel like they're in the midst of that right now, might feel like they're in the midst of a storm, a season of life, where it's harder and harder to to believe some of these truths. Father, would you give them an extra measure of grace this morning and would you you make these truths real, personal to them this morning? Father, we thank you for one another to remind one another in the midst of the taunts, in the midst of the continued threats, even though You've won the the war, the battles rage on. And so we thank you for one another, the faithful, to convict us, to challenge us, to encourage us, to strengthen us in our times of, of doubt. Thank you for this church in particular, this community of believers. I thank you for West Hills, for all that it's meant to so many in this room and, 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 and some who have passed on and some who have moved and just your faithfulness to this church and through this church to others over the years. Father, I pray your continued shepherding guidance, protection, blessing over this church and over our ministry for many, many years to come. It's in Jesus' name we pray.